It is good to be back in the pulpit. I want to thank the elders for encouraging me to uh, take not only the 31st while we were traveling, but last week off uh, from preaching, although it felt very strange after having preached 51 straight weeks in 2023 to have had two weeks intentionally planned off. So thank you congregation as well for that. Uh, that is not common in a lot of churches, and but yet it is a good thing to have different ones who can handle God's word. Uh, so thank you, Guy, for preaching last week. Thank you, Jesse, for uh, preaching the week before, uh, and look forward to raising up others who can step into the pulpit and preach God's word, declaring his excellencies. Before we do come to the preaching of the word, let's go back to our God in prayer uh, in what I call the pastoral prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the opportunity we have here this morning to gather and to worship you. Father, we pray, Lord, uh, that as we come to this time of reading and unfolding your word, God, Lord, help our minds to be put at ease. Lord, for our hearts and our minds to stop wondering. Lord, we are tempted and distracted by uh, good things, by bad things, by life and its circumstances, by sicknesses, all of these things, Lord, that can distract us. Lord, help us to lay these aside for the next little bit so that we may hear from you, that we may worship you in sitting under the preaching and teaching of your word. Father, we pray, Lord, uh, not only for ourselves this morning, but for those around the world who have gathered. Father, in particular, uh, this morning coming to mind are uh, at least six various churches I know in the Middle East uh, with personal ties to, Lord, of servants serving you in local churches there. Lord, who are laboring to declare the excellencies of Christ. And Lord, I want to us to pray for them here, Lord, for asking, Lord, for you to strengthen them and sustain them in the work that they are doing, especially as conflict and tensions rise further and further in the Middle East, Lord, that you would be with these uh, expat brothers and sisters, those that are not local to the land. And Lord, be, give them favor Give them favor as they are having conversations with those uh, belonging to the Middle East. Give them favor uh, to be seen as, as good and wise people. Lord, help them to have that favor in these conversations so that they may declare Christ and make your glory known. Father, we pray, Lord, for many souls there in the Middle East to come to know you and to love you. In Turkey in Iraq, and Iran, in the United Arab Emirates, in Morocco, Yemen, Father, in Jordan. Lord, we pray for these things. Saudi Arabia, God, may your glory go forth so that people may come and worship you. Father, we also pray, Lord, not only uh, for the ends of the earth, but Lord, we pray for other pastors here regionally, Lord, proclaiming the gospel, declaring your excellencies this morning. Father, this morning, let us just pray, Lord, for, for faithful pastors, Lord, who get up and 
proclaim your word. Father, we pray, Lord, that you will do a work mightily through the local church. Lord, in particular, this morning, I I think uh, of Greg Gilbert in stepping into the pulpit there at Third Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Father, pray for, we pray for him, Lord, as he declares your word, that you will use it to cut to the hearts of the people and build up that body of believers so that you may be exalted on high. Father, Lord, and we pray, Lord, that you will now do the same for us. Lord, work through your word so that we may be built up in Christ and come to love you and worship you all the more. Father, we pray and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start by asking two questions this morning, and I hope they will make sense in the end and not just boasting of different famous people I know. But the two questions are this. Who have you had the opportunity to meet who is famous? And then what was your reaction? Who have you met famous and what was your reaction in meeting them? Now, this is not expected to shout out. This is a rhetorical question, lest anybody start shouting. But the point in asking this is you get different responses when you meet famous people. Now, in having worked my college, my university years with the University of Tennessee, go Vols, I had the opportunity to work with some legends. I had the opportunity to personally interact with people that are well-known, at least in the college football world. I had the opportunity to work with college Hall of Fame football coach Philip Fulmer. I had the opportunity to work with uh, a now-retired David Cutcliffe, who coached both Peyton Manning and Eli Manning. I had the opportunity to work with the newly named New England Patriots head football coach, Gerard Mayo. Personal relationships with these guys, greats. I even had the opportunity to interact with Peyton Manning himself the year he beat the Chicago Bears in the Super Bowl. I knew some of you would enjoy that. But as, as we... Talk about getting to know these people. There's different responses. Because I worked with these, I had a responsibility to keep myself composed. To act like I knew what it was like to be around these well-known publicly public figures. But one of my coworkers responded very different. We knew the same people, we worked with the same people, and yet our responses were very different. His response was so filled with fantasy, uh, that's not even the right word. He was such a fanatic that we nicknamed him Johnny Vol Fan. Because he was so enamored by being around these guys that he was just like stargazed so much so that we had to say like, dude, get a grip and do your job. Same people, two different responses. Friends, it is not uncommon when we meet someone to have very different responses. And we see this as we come to Matthew 2 this morning. As we come to Matthew 2, 1 through 12, which can be found there on page 960 in the Red Pew Bibles, we come to see the responses of people 
to the news that Jesus is the king of the Jews. We see the various responses of various groups and how they respond. Now, while you're turning there and and getting situated there in Matthew 2, 1 through 12 on page 960, just to to give us a running start, because it's been a couple weeks since we've been in the gospel according to Matthew. We come back now after having spent four weeks looking at Matthew 1 and seeing here is this Jesus who has been born, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We saw how Jesus is the one who fulfilled all the promises to Abraham and the patriarchs, that he was the one who was going to bring blessing to the nations. Then in The second week, we saw how Jesus is the fulfillment as the son of David, the one who has come to sit on the throne of David forever. He is the eternal king. And then we saw in the third week, Jesus being the one who brings hope through the deportation, hope following the deportation. He brings hope through a line of nobodies, of lost kingship. He's the one who brings it back. And then finally, in his arrival, that he is the one who fulfills prophecy of long ago, that he is the son born of a virgin who comes to take away the sin of the world. We have hope in the arrival of this king. But as we continue this morning, now we must come. How do we respond to this Jesus? How do we respond to who he is? Well, hear the word of the Lord. From Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for, it is, for so it is written by the prophet, Are you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah? For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and asserted, or ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. What in the world? How do we sum this up? Well, here is what I think is the main idea of this text. And if I'm doing this whole preaching thing, the main idea of this sermon, we will either reject Jesus as the true king with hostility or indifference, or we we will seek him with joyful worship. We will either 
reject Jesus as the true king with hostility or indifference, or we will seek him with joyful worship. I'm going to leave that on the screen for a moment. But here's the three points that we're going to break this down, the the handlebars of this sermon. Point number one, a response of hostility. Point number one, a response of hostility. Point number two, a response of indifference. A response of indifference. And point number three, a response of worship. A response of worship. Point number one, a response of hostility. Verses one and two of our text again. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The stage is set in these opening verses of this response to who is this king of the Jews and how will we respond to this news? Now, if, if we're going directly in, in the first response mentioned, it indeed is worship here by the wise men or magi. Different translations translate this differently of magi and wise men. It's the, the same people, though. But this is not the, the first response we need to give our attention to. We need to set our mind on how others first respond to this. And then worship is summed up at the end, which is why we're putting this response at the end. But nonetheless, these magi, these wise men travel from the east, from a foreign country to enter into Jerusalem to seek out this one who has been born king of the Jews. Now, it's debated by some, and sorry if I I ruin your favorite Christmas song here, uh, of whether these magi were wise men or kings. The song, We Three Kings, they're not kings, hate to tell you. Sorry if I've just ruined your favorite Christmas song. It's fine to sing it, but they're not kings. Magi, by the very name, which is the underlying word here that's translated wise men, are those who are astrologers, those who study the stars, both taking a a secular input as well as a religious one and studying the stars from this perspective. They study the stars in order looking for them. They have an understanding to themselves. Now, yes, they're wealthy. We're going to see them bring Great gifts to the king of glory. But they're wise men that have come. They're foreigners that have come in search of this one born king of the Jews. And as they come and search, they go to Jerusalem where Herod is and thinking that, okay, surely one born king of the Jews, the king of Jerusalem is going to know. And there we for we come to our first response to this news of one born king of the Jews. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Herod was the king in Jerusalem. And yet he's troubled by this news that a king of the Jews has been born. Why? Because Herod has no rightful heir to this throne. 
Herod is not a Jew. He is not of the line of David. He has no claim. He is a politician who has worked and swindled his way through the Roman government to take kingship here in Jerusalem. So he hears this of a, a rightful one born king of the Jews who has a rightful claim to the heir. The one who is as we know, has been called the son of David, the true and right heir. He feels threatened by this king. That's why Herod's heart is troubled. Not only his heart, but all of Jerusalem with him. But notice the hostility that's going to develop here. Herod is so threatened by this king that he goes to inquire of two very different groups. Verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. I want to, to quote a, a commentator here, Daniel Durani. Durani, sorry, I always butcher his name. Hear this quote, though. These two groups stood at the opposite ends of Jewish social leadership. The scribes were conservative teachers of scripture, bent on preserving traditional Jewish culture. The chief priests, as opposed to ordinary priests, were Sadducees. The Sadducees were willing to accommodate Roman power and Greek culture to retain their wealth and power. To put this in, in layman's terms, you've got essentially a group that wants to keep using going back to the worship wars. You've got the group that wants to keep nothing but the hymns they grew up with. No matter how good or bad they are, they want to keep those hymns. And you've got the, this new group who wants to appeal to every modern appeal they can. That's what you've kind of got in these two groups here. Just to, to make this clear, this division that's here of these chief priests and these scribes. Herod calls these two very different groups together, not because he wants the broad spectrum, but he knows that if they both tell him the same thing, there must be some truth to it. So that now he can unfold his plan of killing this one who has been born king of the Jews. That's Herod's hostility. That's what we see at work here. These two groups he wants to drive to fill him in on where is this one king of the Jews so that I can go and kill him. That I can eliminate him now as a baby before he ever rises to claim this throne that I'm calling mine. Don't believe me? Continue looking through this. They, they come, they tell him, we'll get into that momentarily. As they tell him in Bethlehem, verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and asserted, uh, ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Herod gives this appeal that he wants them to go and find so that he too may join them in this worship. Herod, if you really want to worship, go with them. But he doesn't want to worship. He sends them. As we'll see next week, Herod sends them so that they may help him in his plot because Herod's going to send soldiers to find and kill a baby. And if he can't find out where, he's going to kill every male under two years old. We'll get to that next week. But it, as we see this, we see the hostility here and the response of Herod in this hostile way. So much so that it's affirmed down in verse 12. 
And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Herod, again, he gives this false claim that he seeks to worship. Listen to these words of Spurgeon. Spurgeon paints the picture better than I ever could. Artful wretch, murder was in his heart, but pious pretenses were on his tongue. May none of us be Herodians in hypocrisy. To promise to worship and to intend to destroy is a piece of trickery very usual in our own days. It's in trickery and hypocrisy that Herod sends the Magi to search for this child and claims it in the name of worship. Herod seeks not to worship the king, but to kill the king. He is hostile. He is threatened by the king because Herod wants power. He wants his position to stay how it is. He doesn't want another to rise and to threaten him. Friends, is this not still an all too common response in our day and time when we hear one has been born king of the Jews, born the king of kings, the king of glory? It's a threat because we don't want to lose power. We do not want to lose control. And you think, wait, I don't have any power. I'm somebody who lives in the North Woods, a minimalist life. Guess what? The power we hold on to is the power to call good what we deem good as good and what we deem as evil, evil, and nothing else and nothing more. Friends, this is the way the world wants to respond to the news that a king of the Jews has been born. A response that I want to hold my power. I want to stay as my own king. I don't need another king. We see this in the world going on right now. Every hostile attack is rooted in this. You show me somebody hostile towards the gospel, towards King Jesus and his people, at the root of it is this power of wanting to define on their own what is good and evil. So much so that a world is willing to try and rewrite history and undo history in order to further an agenda. But maybe this isn't where we need to most focus. Yes, the world is going to respond hostilely to the gospel. Friends, we should not be surprised when the world responds in this way if they did it to Jesus himself. Consider here the other group that was troubled with Herod, all of Jerusalem with him. The very ones that Jesus has come to save is troubled with him. They're troubled, not so in the sense that they feel power threatened, but that they're Normal and their status is threatened. They're, they feel the threat that if a king rises, Herod's going to get riled up and we might lose what we've worked to claim and hold on to. They're willing to kill Jesus, even though he's innocent. As one of the leaders will go on to say, isn't it better that one man die so that the whole nation may not be destroyed? You see how this tie and hostility begins to form so much so that they're willing to put Jesus forward as one who is to be sacrificed, sacrificed on a cross. This is the hostility that begins to form and it will continue to form. Friends, 
People are going to be hostile when we share the good news of Jesus, when we identify with him. If it hated him, how much more so will they hate us as his people? But how do we respond? Friends, it is not by raising up our sword and going to war in a culture war with the world. I'm sorry to tell you, as many try to paint it off, the call is not for Christians to enter a culture war. That's not how Jesus did. How did Jesus respond to those who were hostile to him? He prayed for them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In God's sovereignty in my Bible reading this morning, I read another passage of Acts 7 this morning of Stephen who prayed a similar prayer as he was being stoned to death. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Friends, as the world responds in hostility, us as Christians, this is is the biggest takeaway we need to leave here this morning with in, in regard to hostility. It is to be merciful towards those that show hostility. It is to pray for them. It is to continue to take up the sword of the gospel and declare the excellencies of who Jesus is and pointing them the fact that their reason they struggle and are hostile is because they want to be their own kings instead of having God as king. They have rejected the one who has made them. Friends, this is how we respond to this response of hostility. Christian, let us imitate Jesus. Let us follow wisely there. Again, this type of response is expected, but let us respond in a way that brings honor to the king of glory. Point number two, a response of indifference. We see hostility from Herod and all of Jerusalem with him, but then we come to indifference. Verse four. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He assembles these two very different groups again, and he asks them, where is this Jesus to be born? How do they answer? Verses 5 and 6. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is a direct quote of Micah 5.2. Again, here it's on the screen. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, One who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Well, it's not a direct quote they give. The the line of thinking is there summing up this. It's probably what most of our scripture memory looks like. We we kind of paraphrase it. That's what they do. They, They sum up this. They recall it. In regards to Bible trivia, the both of these groups, the chief priests and the scribes, guess what? They get an A. They get an A in Bible trivia. They know their Bible. They know where he who is to be born king of the Jews was to be born in Bethlehem. They tell Herod this precisely. That's exactly where the Magi will go and find it. They know their Bibles. But there's a problem. What do they do? They know it. 
but they don't respond. Again, let me hear a quote from Daniel uh, Dorani. They expect their deliverer here and reports that fit the prophecy, yet Matthew implies they do nothing. They do not rejoice. They do not join the Magi. They do not go to Bethlehem to worship this shepherd and ruler or even to investigate the report. They answer the king and go home. They give the right answer and then go home. Nothing changes. Spurgeon adds to this. These scribes knew where to find the text about the Savior's birth, and they could put their fingers upon the spot in the map where he should be born. And yet they knew not the king, neither cared to seek him out. Further, J.C. Ryle, the Anglican bishop, we are told that they gave him a quick answer and showed an accurate acquaintance with the letter of Scripture, but they never went to Bethlehem to seek the coming Savior They would not believe in him when he ministered among them. Their heads were better than their hearts. Friends, it is of no benefit to us if we know scripture backward and forward. If we have thousands of verses memorized. If we have read through the Bible a hundred times or more. If it does not change and affect our hearts. We are as indifferent as these scribes and as these chief priests in that moment. This indifference, this response of uh, indifference is only enough to give us a knowledge of God, a knowledge of God that is not knowledge enough to condemn us to hell. That's the reality of indifference. Friends, this is one of the greatest responses that we're going to encounter as we do evangelism, as we labor to do discipleship. The world is indifferent to who the king is. They are not hostile, but they're neither for. They're neither hostile, they're neither worshipers of Jesus. And yet this indifference is enough to send them to hell. Because they do not love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They do not seek to delight in the one who has sent his only begotten son to rescue them from death. Friends, let us beware of simply knowing the things of God. Children, teenagers, I want to speak directly to you for a minute here because this is a danger specifically for you. Now, there's others in here that can benefit greatly from this truth, but I I want to speak to you for a moment. As your parents lead you and bring you here week in and week out, as you hear the stories of the Savior you are tempted to ignore these or to to think you know about the Savior. You're tempted to think, because I grew up in church, because mom and dad are Christian, I certainly too am a Christian. Your knowledge, you are so close to the truth in hearing it that you begin to be unmoved by it. Therefore, showing you do not have a heart of worship, but a heart of indifference to the king of glory. Children, young people, I want to to share this quote from J.C. Ryle to stir your hearts. How often the very people who live nearest to the means of grace are those who neglect them most. There is only too much truth in the old proverb, the nearer the church, the farther from God. 
Familiarity with sacred things has an awful tendency to make men despise them. Children, young people, do not despise the gospel. Do not despise this gospel as it's proclaimed week in and week out. Cherish it. Love the one who came and bled and died in order to save you and rescue you. Make the faith not that of your parents, but of your own young people. This is what we want to see. Hearts that are not indifferent, but hearts that actually seek to worship the king of glory. Friends, let us look to the Magi and how they respond here to the king of glory. A response of worship. Again, back to verses 1 and 2. What did the, king, or the Magi come to do? What did these wise men come to do? Now after, back in verses 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The Magi were not from Jerusalem. They were not Jews. They're foreigners who have come upon hearing the news that a king of the Jews has been born. What little they knew, they didn't even know where he would be born. They didn't have the scriptures like the scribes and the chief priests. And yet what they knew, they came. They sought this king. They sought to find him and to worship him. This is how each of us should rightly respond to the news that a king has been born. To come and to worship him. To take whatever little we know and seek this king and worship him. But what in the world does this look like? What in the world does worship actually look like? Now, I like the song 10,000 Reasons, and I didn't plan on doing this. In fact, I told my wife before I was not going to mention on worship and singing because I didn't feel it important until it hit me during the middle of the song. And it's like, I got to. (laughs) Friends, singing is worship, but worship is not singing. It's more. From the moment we gather here on Sunday morning... Till the very end of our time is what is known as corporate worship. Us gathering together as a body to worship together. That means, yes, singing is part of that worship. But so is the reading of the word. So is the praying of the word. And guess what? Whether or not you're dull with it half the time, so is the preaching of the word. It's worship as we come and sit under the authority of the word. Now, I realize I am no longer in a Baptist world, but I'm going to make a Baptist joke and hopefully it lands here. Growing up in a Baptist world, Baptists get a lot of things messed up. Just owning that. But one thing Baptists historically have gotten very right, one is baptism. We can have that side conversation later. But pulpit being in the center of the church not the musicians not yes in 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 our case we've got the lord's table here but you know if you grew up in the catholic church it was not the the preaching it was the the lord's table that was in the center and the focal point the baptists have historically had the pulpit right here in the center because it's 
to indicate that we come to sit under the preaching of God's word as part of worship. And that's an important thing for us to think about as we see what true worship is. Now, I hope to unfold this from our text here in Matthew 2 here, briefly here. What is this worship? It's one, a seeking out of the Savior, just as the Magi did. They traveled from the east great distance to come and to find this king. They came from afar to worship him. So, so part of worship is a seeking of this king of the Jews, King Jesus himself, to worship him. It's seeking him out to find him and to go where he is, to follow him. But we see in the sense of, of looking at the Magi and their response, verses 9 and 10 and 11, listen how they respond. And after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense. And myrrh. Worship is not out of obligation. It's out of sheer joyful delight. Worship is not out of obligation. It is out of sheer joyful delight in Jesus. They rejoiced in seeing the star and it's still being risen and landing right where they needed to go, of leading them to the house in which the king was in. Now, just a side note here. I know there's a lot of confusion here of some significant amount of time had to have gone between where Jesus was shunned from entering the inn and being laid in a manger till this point of entering a house for the wise men. That may be so. But that's reading the text with our American cultural lenses. When we see in Luke that Jesus was shunned from the inn, it's not talking about Holiday Inn Express. It's not talking about Marriott. It's not talking about Hilton. It's not talking even about a Motel 8. There was none of those. An inn was simply a guest room in a house for visitors to stay. Now, Without a hotel, with a 14-story building, with all of these rooms, can you imagine what Bethlehem was like when everybody's having to travel for a census? All of these inns, these guest rooms are filled up, so much so that as Mary and Joseph come, even with her being expecting a child, there's nowhere for them to stay. So when it says an inn, it is likely that they are still in the living quarters of a house. And being laid in a manger, these houses were built with a stable or a place to keep animals and livestock for quick access right below the main living floor. So he was not born likely in with cattle and sheep in an actual stable. Yes, he was laid in a manger, but he was here in the house. So we don't really know how much time has come by. So let us be mindful that, though, as we read this. He is likely in the same place. This is probably a quicker happening than we ever would like to think. Probably two, three weeks, possibly even. 
Perfect timing for when we ended Matthew 1 to Matthew 2. Just saying. But in this, as they come and enter this house, as they find Jesus with his mother, Mary, in this house, they bow before him and worship. Worship by giving gifts. By giving and showing his worth. Worship, guess what? It means, or it comes from the word worthoscope, which means to give worth. Worship is a declaring of worth. So worship, when we think about worship, is the declaring of worth of who God is. Of who the triune God is as Father, Son, and Spirit. So to worship the King of glory as he comes, the Magi come in and they bow before giving allegiance to and surrender, humbling themselves by laying prostrate in showing his worth, that he is worth more than them, even in all their fancy gifts. They give these gifts in showing this worth of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gold, of course, we know is expensive. It's inexpensive to buy a gold earring, a gold watch, a gold necklace, let alone bars of gold. Frankincense is expensive. But myrrh, here's what one commentator said on it. I think this is fascinating to help us show the expensive gifts they give. Myrrh is the equivalent of $10,000 in today's dollar. Of $10,000 of today's dollar. And they gave all three of these gifts to show the worth of this king. Worship, friends, is the declaring of worth of who Jesus is. Yes, in singing, but of laying ourselves before him and of giving ourselves to him, of showing that he is worth more than even that of our own lives, of emptying everything we have, declaring that he is worth all of it, joyfully and eagerly. This means, friends, part of of worship includes giving financially. I know that's a, a sensitive church or subject in the church, and I don't like talking about it, but it applies right here. So part of worship is giving. Part of that is a joyful giving to the advancement of God's kingdom and the ministry of the local church. But it's also a giving and pouring out of ourselves and our lives into the advancement of this kingdom to further show that Jesus is worth it. So this means emptying ourselves and serving the king, emptying ourselves of even that of maybe our lives for service to the king, to declare his excellencies that he is worth more of taking the gospel to the nations and declaring Jesus is king, even if it may cost our lives in it. Friends, this is what worship is We need to see that the worship of Jesus is this overflow of delight in who he is that we're willing to risk it all. I wrote here, worship of Jesus is to be the great overflow of our rejoicing hearts in declaring the great worth of the Savior to the world. To remember that this Jesus is the one who has bled and died in order to purchase us 
from sin. This is what we are to remember week in and week out as we gather for worship. Worship is is an act of remembering what Jesus has done and is doing. Friends, the reason we talk a lot, you're going to hear me over and over again talk about the gospel, is not because I want it to be a trendy word. The reason declaring this gospel, because it is still good news. It is ongoing good news because it reminds us that we have been purchased from sin and death by the blood of Christ and have been made alive in him. That he has already taken our sins and done away from them and he is still at work in us removing that sin in our lives. Friends, this is why worship is so important. We remember this as we worship and it causes this delight in Jesus. Remembering that God has loved us in the sending of this beloved son. Friends, let us worship with such delight. Let us remember all of this. But there's more to it than just this. Verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the part of worship that's rarely talked about. Worship is not merely saying, I delight in Jesus. It's not just a matter of singing loudly to our favorite hymns or new Christian songs. Worship is not in word only, it is in deed, the deed of obedience. A life of worship is a life of obedience. When the king speaks, when he calls us and instructs us, a life of worship is regularly and in the pattern of obedience to the king. Therefore, Christian, let us hear what the king has called us to. Let us follow him as obedient servants because of who he is. Because he has purchased us. He owns us. Our very lives are dependent upon him. We have no life apart from him. Therefore, as I believe the the first catechism, we are not our own, but belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let our lives of worship Be a life of obedience to this king. Friends, brothers, sisters, this is what it means to worship the king. To respond in worship to him. Now, friend, if you're here this morning and you have not yet come to understand and believe in this king. If you are one who has been indifferent to him or even hostile to this king, guess what? He does not stand to block your way. He, in fact, calls you to himself to come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and come find rest in him. To come and trust him. To rest in him as your savior. He does not stand to keep you from coming. He invites you to come. All you need to do, friend, if this is you, is to turn from your allegiance to sin and come to Jesus in repentance. Come to him and trust that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Yes, he is king, 
But he is a glorious king worthy of declaring allegiance to. Because he is the king who laid down his life so that his people may live. And live we may in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you have given a son born, the king of the Jews, one worthy of worship. And yet, Lord, our hearts so often don't respond this way. God, help us in it. Help us to respond accordingly in a right worship of you. Father, help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength because of what you have done for us in Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen.